Hi, this is Tom Davenport, author of The AI Advantage, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Tom Davenport. Tom is the President's Distinguished Professor of Information Technology and Management at Babson College, a visiting professor at Oxford University's Sade Business School, a fellow of the MIT Center for Design for Digital Business, and a senior advisor to Deloitte's AI practice. When he has time to sleep, we just don't know. He teaches analytics and big data at executive programs at Babson, Harvard B School of Public Health, and the MIT Sloan School. He pioneered the concept of competing on analytics with his 2006 best-selling book, uh, best-selling Harvard Review article, and his 2007 book by the same name. He's written or edited 20 books in total and over 300 articles for Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, and the Financial Times, among many other publications. He writes columns for Forbes, MIT Sloan Management Review, and the Wall Street Journal. He's been named one of the world's top 25 consultants by Consulting Magazine, and one of the 100 most influential people in the IT industry by Ziff Davis Magazines, and one of the world's top 50 business school professors by Fortune Magazine. Tom lives in Sarasota, Florida, and is here to talk about his book, The AI Advantage, How to Put Artificial Intelligence Revolution to Work. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. And it's you in actual presence, not a bot. So I am thrilled to have you in person. Yeah, fortunately, my job, I think, will be among the relatively late entrants into the AI world. Let me ask you, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I had two professors in graduate school who were very different, who both inspired me. One was named Daniel Bell, and he was a sort of futurist thinker about society and business and so on. He'd been a fortune writer, which is an unusual background for a Harvard professor. And he inspired me with his big thinking. And then I had another professor named Jim Davis, who was incredibly down to earth, very data driven in all of his teaching and research, and just a very kind of plain spoken guy. And I would like to think I ended up somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. And they both taught at Harvard? Did you do your... They did. I went to graduate school at Harvard. And you say that they both had lasting influences on you. Do you remember a decision that you made that was influenced by their examples, their work, even today, maybe how you approach solving problems or thinking about things as a result of their early influence and probably demanding relationship with you as a, a, a grad student. Yeah, Daniel Bell was remote. He's gone. Both of them are gone now and nobody will be offended. But I really like the fact that he thought of everything in terms of systems that interact and how we might live in the future. Jim Davis was much closer friend of mine and got me very interested in statistical computing and I think believe that I could be a successful academic, although he said, you're not quite neurotic enough to be really successful as an academic, which probably explains why I've gone back and forth between being a consultant and an academic since I got my degree. One of the things that I was thinking of just as I was introducing you was when I said that you're here in the flesh, virtually, of course, with video conference, is I was laughing thinking that this might be a good question for the Turing test. Who's someone who influenced you growing up? I think it'd be difficult 
fault for a program in order to come up with that sort of backstory, unless it was specifically designed to do. Why don't you just refresh people who are listening to this? I think everyone's heard some mention of Alan Turing's test. Describe what it is and then tell me what your thoughts. Would that be a good question to help stump the program? Yeah, Alan Turing was an early computer scientist. There have been great movies about him. He lived in the UK more or less during the 30s, 40s, or early 50s. And he had the idea that the way to tell whether a computer system was really good at interacting with humans in human language was to try to imagine a system where you couldn't really tell whether it was a machine or a human. And if you couldn't tell, then it passes the Turing test. And I think there is a kind of does the machine understand language perspective and can it interact effectively with questions and answers. That's one dimension. But as you suggest, another dimension is can it come close to being a human in terms of having a background and people who influenced it and so on. And as you suggest, I think the only way that would work for a computer system is if somebody anticipated your question and programmed it into the computer system. The topic of using AI to gain business advantages and insights is of interest to everyone today, especially because so much of our world is already being touched by artificial intelligence. How is it that you cite in the book, there are many digital native companies and enterprises like Google and Amazon and Apple um, who have embraced this technology as well as their ability to apply it and develop services with it. What is your take on how a company like, say, Google, I'm sorry, what is your take on how a company like Amazon has started to embrace AI and build it into some of the service offerings that it provides? Sure. Amazon was certainly an early adopter with recommendation systems. People who bought this book would like another book or collaborative filtering that was called, and they, they bought it from another company, but they've had some really ambitious AI projects and many more that are less ambitious but still valuable. I think the two biggest sort of moonshots, the most aggressive ones, have been the Amazon Go stores, this idea that you can walk into a convenience store and take a number of things off a shelf and just walk out without paying, presumably. Sadly... Maybe um, without stopping at a cashier. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Sadly, you are not going to get away without paying because at least all the times I have tried, my bill has been delivered to me on my phone shortly after I walk out the door. So that's been pretty successful. I think there are now 30 or 40 or so around the US. It is arguably one of the world's most expensive convenience stores to open and operate, but I think the costs will come down over time. They probably already are. Its other most ambitious project is the idea that an autonomous drone will deliver packages to your doorstep step any day now. And Jeff Bezos promised that by the end of 2018, we're not there yet. At least I haven't seen any on my doorstep. So there's a batting 500 on really ambitious projects. But Bezos said that in one of his letters to the shareholders that the vast majority of their work in AI was, I think his phrase was, quietly but meaningfully improving core operations. So things like reducing fraud and doing a better job of merchandising and optimizing their supply chain and so on. Things that aren't necessarily visible and are low-hanging fruit in comparison to these highly ambitious 
projects. So in your book, you break down eight or seven different aspects of AI from statistical machine learning, neural networks, deep learning, natural language processing, rule-based expert systems, physical robots, and robot process and automation. These are areas that all contribute to this field and can be seen in large corporations as they experiment with it, with video cameras watching as you walk into a ghost store to see what you're taking, see the quantity, and then connect it up with a table to see what you should be charged. Many small businesses are saying we're the beneficiaries of this, yet so few understand that IBM and Amazon and Google and many other large corporations have created public-facing APIs to tap into some of these advantageous technologies that we in small business can apply to our own data sets, can look at and analyze some of the supply chain issues that we have. What is your perspective on what small business leaders ought to be thinking about in order to employ AI? as a competitive advantage. You're exactly right, Bill, that all of these large cloud providers not only provide processing capabilities, compute power, as it were, they provide storage, of course, of your data, but they also provide a number of, in most cases, free applications, many of which have to do with AI. You know, if you're a Google Cloud user, you can make use of TensorFlow, very sophisticated deep learning system that will help you you do things like image identification. And the same is true of Microsoft and Amazon, and to a lesser degree from a cloud perspective, IBM, although they do have a number of Watson services that are available in the cloud. I think the constraint for small businesses is no longer processing power, having a big data center, paying a lot for AI software. I think there are still some constraints. One is the time to think about how AI would fit into the business. The awareness of what's possible with AI, because many small business people are buried in the day-to-day and don't have a lot of free time to imagine a better way to, to do business. And frankly, there are still some constraints that hardware and software and the technology in general get cheaper all the time for AI. The people who really understand AI are not getting any cheaper. So if it's something where you need to develop an AI application yourself for some reason, those people are not going to be terribly cheap. You can rent them as consultants. But as you pointed out, there are available some pretty easy to use capabilities. And in certain areas like robotic process automation, you don't need data science capabilities. Almost anybody who's computer literate can automate a small process in your business using some visual point-and-click tools. You've written about and studied examples through your consulting work as well as your research of small businesses that have embraced AI and even advanced AI principles. What's an example of a company that you've worked with or learned about closely that's been able to take advantage of the tools and benefited in some measurable way in the near term, not in some far-off way, but in real practical terms, it's helped their business. Sure. It's, I live in, I'm in Sarasota now, but I live in Boston during the more hospitable months of the year. And I became aware of an AI company that supported mortgage underwriting, you know, relatively small company, mostly, I think, using natural language processing to extract key data elements from all of the many, over 500 types of forms that organizations 
institutions use for mortgage-related information. And so they told me about their first customer, a company called Radius Finance, based south of Boston. So I was quite interested in them. And I contacted the chief operating officer. He told me a bit about what he did with AI, basically supporting the entire underwriting process, not only extracting the information, but also in most cases, making a decision about whether somebody is a good candidate for uh, a mortgage from this company and using robotic process automation to do a lot of the automated correspondence with a borrower to contact all of the different parties in the transaction before it, et cetera. So they, using those technologies, Radius has been able to reduce their processing costs quite dramatically, much less than other companies, which means, of course, they can lower, they can offer better rates to customers and then still make a quite healthy profit. So I invited the chief operating officer to speak to my class. I was very impressed with that. And he said, oh, you should join our advisory board. So I did. If somebody buys them or they go public someday, I'll make a little bit of money. But in general, I was very impressed because here's a business that's quite well known. A lot of companies are in it, but they've managed to create a sizable competitive advantage through the use of AI and related technologies. And I think a lot of companies could do that sort of thing. So at this point, they've automated the process so that the AI system reviews the applicants, looks at a variety of different factors, looks at the market conditions, and then comes up with a recommendation that's then reviewed by experienced managers and underwriters. It's not completely automating the process, but it's greatly saving a good deal of time. And has they noticed that it's improved the quality of the loans so that there are fewer drop-offs or bad loans made? Yes. In many cases, mortgage companies resell your loans to someone else, but for the loans that they keep, they have a very low charge-off level. And I think the improvements in decision-making are as good as the improvements in efficiency and mortgage processing. And I could probably think of how AI could be used in almost any small business today. There's so many different applications that are available, and it's getting easier from one other perspective in that many software vendors, transactional system vendors like customer relationship management software, Salesforce.com, for example, they can embed for a few extra bucks a month, they can embed some AI capabilities into the software that you get. So if your salespeople are using Salesforce, you can pay $20 more per month and get a an AI-based ranked list of the companies most likely to buy from that salesperson. So they're not just calling at random on a list. They're calling the ones where the deal is most likely to be closed and making them much more productive. That's interesting. So the software is actually recommending different accounts to salespeople or account reps based upon their strengths, their background, their past performance in closing deals and servicing those customers in similarly sized industries or similarly sized companies. Yeah, it's learning from the past. There's more, there's some data about the salesperson, but there's more about for that type of customer who's displayed these behaviors thus far. They've called back three times. They've asked for a quote. They're probably pretty close to a sale. So, you know, why not go with them and, and close the deal and then move on to the next one as opposed to calling up somebody who's displayed very little interest thus far? That's really interesting. And I think that many small businesses use a variety of different CRMs, including Salesforce, and it's a very approachable and very pragmatic use of AI. What about with visual?
visual imaging. I think that's a really interesting topic, especially in an era when we're looking to identify not just with law enforcement, but also we're looking to track things, say, with the, the pandemic and being able to use AI to help improve our healthcare policies and practices. What do you think of what's been done so far? Maybe what are a couple of the errors that you've seen made? And what would be a recommendation for people to learn about it? Bill, we probably could have done a lot more than we generally do in part for privacy related reasons. So for example, we've had software for a while that could do facial recognition in a retail context. And it sounds great. Instead of paying for a human greeter at the front door, somebody's presence would be known as soon as you walk in and the proprietor could greet them and by name and get a display of what they bought recently and so on. The problem is that many customers would just feel creeped out by that level of intimacy, particularly if they weren't friends with the store owner or whatever. You have to consider not only what are the technology capabilities, but is this something that would really freak out a customer feeling that their privacy had been violated to some degree. Let me take off on that. I think in other cultures, say London, which is the most camera embedded culture I've ever read about or experienced, where there are video cameras that feed into centralized servers of just everywhere you walk in London. And they're much more used to, they're indoctrinated to the fact that they don't have these levels of privacy that are enjoyed in other places. The same in China, huge amount of facial recognition used in China, both for commercial purposes, if you are going up to a banked ATM machine to use your ATM card to extract cash, a facial recognition system will confirm that you are, in fact, the person who is taking out the, the cash at many banks, certainly used in ways that we in the United States would not find so appealing sometimes for law enforcement activities, for adjusting your social credit score based on whether or not you jaywalk or not. I don't think we would like that very much, but you're right, there are definitely differences across cultures and how much tolerance people have for that kind of application. As we look to offer more opportunities for using AI to our advantage in business, what are some questions and issues that business leaders need to address about their constituents and about introducing it in a way that is both respectful and ethical in the use of AI? Because it can be used in a lot of ways that are gray or even on the, the wrong side of the law. Yeah, I think the most important factor is transparency about what you're doing. If you are going to use facial recognition software and cameras, put up a sign that, that announces it. Say something about what you're using it for. Say something about whether you are keeping a record of the data or not. I think in the United States, people are willing to tolerate a fair amount if the business is honest with them about what they're doing about it and gives them the opportunity to opt out if they are uncomfortable. Now, I think these days we don't really know in many cases exactly how customers will feel about something. Sometimes you do have to try out some new capabilities without knowing for sure if customers will go along with it. But I think transparency and the ability to opt out will make a lot of people feel better about it. Do you know of an example of a company that's successfully been very transparent about what they were doing as they moved into a new area using AI technology? One of the earliest applications that used machine learning was the 
credit score, which was pioneered by Fair Isaac and Co., now known as FICO. And pretty much everybody now knows that there's such a thing as a FICO score or credit score. And But I admire what Fair Isaac, or now I guess they call themselves FICO, has done to provide transparency in that credit score. So you can actually go on their site, MyFICO, and find out why your credit score is what it is. If it changes, you can get some reasons for why it's been adjusted. They, unlike many users of machine learning, they will tell you that 35% of your score is based on your timeliness of payments. 25% of your score is based on the size of your balances with credit providers and so on. So very open, very transparent, gives you a way if you want to improve your score that you can do that. And I think other providers of credit scores now have done similar things. Experian has a new service that I like called Boost, which gives you a, an opportunity to boost your credit score by providing information about your mobile phone accounts. And if you're, it turns out you are reliable in paying your mobile phone provider, then you typically get a boost of several points in your credit score. But it's all very um, transparent and open to the um, people who take advantage of it. What's your perspective, since we're in the area of data privacy, what's your perspective on the fact that when companies say that they're going to protect our data and they get broken into or they get hacked, like in the instance with SolarWinds, turns out that they were in infected with spyware and it turns out that it has exposed numerous servers at all different levels of companies and government access that contained valuable customer data and information that's now it's now in the wind it's been captured absorbed collated sold and resold already there's no way to get back that level of privacy what does that tell us about the direction this is going in and what are some safeguards that companies can do to avoid finding themselves in that position I adhere to the idea that Scott McNeely, who at the time was um, CEO of Sun Microsystems, said when someone asked him, what about my data privacy? This was 20 years ago. And he said, you don't have any data privacy. Get over it. I think in the United States, we don't have any data privacy. And companies can make assurances to us that they um, are careful with our data. But it, as as you point out, and many cases they could have a breach and you would lose your privacy even though the company didn't do anything purposely for you to lose it. We are making some progress at using AI to help us with cybersecurity issues. We have automated threat detection from AI now. It's not perfect Yet, it provides, in most cases, too many false positives for threats. And then we can't fully confirm it with the AI. So a human has to investigate. So in some ways, it's more work for the human rather than less. But I think we will, over time, be able to counter the um, efforts of hackers and data thieves and so on with stronger AI capabilities. You see it certainly in the credit card fraud area where all of the major credit card companies are quite good at detecting potential fraud. And I'm sure many of the listeners have gotten text messages from their credit card providers saying, did you buy this? Press one for yes or two for no. 
Big banks do it. Um, they really don't have any choice. They're required to by regulators, but AI is making it better for any money laundering. And any money laundering used to be a fairly blunt instrument. It was AI-based, but it was rule-based, and it, it also created too many false positives, um, which required a lot of in- investigatory work by the banks. You don't want to accuse your customer of money laundering unless you're pretty sure that they're really doing it. But now machine learning based models will prioritize any money laundering possible transactions and say, "Ah, this one is a pretty low priority. I certainly wouldn't pursue that one further unless something similar happens again in the next six months or so. Or this one is 90% likely you better spend a lot of human time confirming it and, and confront the customer if you need to. That's interesting. What have you seen as being an increase in priority or concern during the pandemic lockdown that companies are now moving, realizing that people are working in more distributed areas? One of the first things that occurs to me is that you really have to get serious about data privacy and network privacy because you've left the office and many more people are working from home and maybe accessing their office with a VPN, but then leaving their computer open and their kids get on a game and and play and expose it to all sorts of different threats and bad actors. I think that is true. Certainly not a cybersecurity expert. My impression on talking to a number of my friends is that companies feel that their employees are suffering so much by working at home and having to educate their children and entertain them and so on that they have not imposed really strict security processes. I suspect they will if they continue with more remote work. But the big impact thus far of the pandemic on AI has been its loss of predictive capability because machine learning, supervised machine learning, is the most popular form of AI. It basically makes predictions about the future on the basis of what's happened in the past. But if you're, if the data that you have today are no longer a good guide to future consumer activity, for example, then your machine learning models are just not going to be very effective. And particularly in the early days of the pandemic, it's getting better now. But people from companies were telling me, my models don't predict anything anymore. I don't know what to manufacture. If I'm a car company, I don't know what cars I need to ship where because the the usual data and algorithms that we've relied on to make predictions about demand versus supply and so on just aren't any good. As one person said, it's amazing what eight weeks of zeros will do to your demand forecasts. That's starting to ease up a bit, but companies had to be very creative and flexible in terms of new approaches to thinking about AI and analytics. So true. Tom, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Sure, why not? Sounds good. All right. So at the beginning, I asked you about people who had influenced you in a positive way and had a positive impact on your life. When you were a teenager, even up to undergrad, what was a song that you really liked? I love the Beach Boys. I don't remember when it came out, but... Good Vibrations, I thought, was fantastic and just incredibly innovative. And I loved uh, The Animals, Eric Burden and The Animals, and The Kingsman with those nasty lyrics and Louie. I thought that was um, quite fascinating what they were saying or not saying. Who knows? That's great. So with all of the consulting and writing and teaching that you do, 
What's a tool or system that you use to stay productive and on track? I try to write something every day and I try to do it in some place that's not just my home office. It's been tricky during the pandemic, but it's a free plug for Starbucks. I go to Starbucks, I order a big iced tea, I sit there until I finish writing something that I need to write. That's I can do that a little bit better in Florida. I can sit outside at least. They don't let you sit inside the Starbucks, but it would be tricky, I think, to try to do that in northern climes these days. Yeah, we don't have access to so many outdoor opportunities. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? The best $100 purchase I've made in the last six months, I got a new Apple Watch and I, amazingly enough, Bill, it actually tells you the time every time you look at it. It costs more than $100, but not a huge amount more. Where the old ones, you had to shake your wrist in order to be able to figure out the time, which if you're speaking on stage, it could be a little bit embarrassing. But I really use it a lot for heart rate monitoring and try to get my heart rate up during interval exercise. And it's made, and of course, I measure my steps every day. I think since the pandemic started a year ago, I've walked or run more than 2,000 miles. So I should have done something more constructive with those miles. I should have, I don't know, run across the United States or something, but I didn't. I just walked around my neighborhoods. So other than one of your own, what's a book that you've given the most as a gift? That's a very good question. My wife is usually the giver of book-related gifts, and they're mostly you know, books that appeal to women more than men. I really, I'm moving myself. I have my bookshelf here, and it's totally empty, or I'd be able to look at it. I liked a lot the work of Jim Stern, who wrote a book about AI and marketing, I found very useful. And he was also a web analytics guy, and I gave away a number of his books. I have liked the books. I have taught at Harvard a couple of times, and my department chair, Marco Iancidi, has written some good books, including a new one about the, I think it's called The Age of Algorithms, that I like given to a few people. But I generally like to give my books away because they're free. I get 25 free copies or something. That is advantageous. Tom, in, in the last year or so, think back about what's one of the most important important habit, routines, or beliefs that you've stopped that's led to the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I really used to to go to movies, and it's somewhat painful to stop that, but this is, after all, the golden age of television, and it's not so horrible to stay at home and watch it all the time, and I can talk to my wife during it, and I can eat a really good popsicle or drink a glass of wine or something like that while I'm doing it, so it has hasn't been that bad. And I think the comparison to previous periods, the wars or Spanish flu pandemic or whatever, where we had to just sit at home and I guess reading was about the only possibility. I, I really like reading, but I like other things too. This is nothing what we've had to go through, it seems to me, in comparison. We've been entertaining ourselves pretty royally. Yes. Thanks to Amazon and Netflix and all the other online entertainment sources. Yeah, exactly. It's hard to keep track of them all. There's so many now. Every network wants to have their own and own the customer relationship. Yeah. And I think we will have at some point analytics and AI that will tell us which ones are best suited to us. But I think now you got to spend a lot of human time figuring out, do I need to sign up for the new Peacock? Am I getting something on Acorn that I'm not getting through Amazon Prime? And it takes a lot to be a good consumer these days. There is a lot of work behind that for sure. Tom Davenport, you have shared 
so many great ideas and insights with us today on My Quest for the Best. I want to thank you for sharing with us the ideas from your graduate professors who shared with you, both taking in the big picture and another faculty member looking at being more data-driven and how that's helped shape the areas of interest that you've pursued in your career. Thanks for talking with us about Amazon and how their moonshots, one's been very successful with their ghost stores and the other one the jury is still out on. But the ideas that they're bringing to us are serve as inspiration for other things that we're looking at in the areas of AI. You shared with us the idea that in order to take advantage of AI, you've got to make time to think about it. You've got to raise your awareness of what's going on. And you've also got to realize that maybe the technology is more and more affordable, but don't wait because the consultants and the people that are required to implement it within your company are never going to get cheaper. AI, we talked about the example with Radius Finance and how they use it to make better mortgage decisions that are faster for the consumer and more advantageous for the company. We talked about in healthcare, how you can use AI in order to solve very difficult problems. And one of the big issues with using AI to a higher degree is being transparent with it. Many consumers, there's more technology available than we're deploying because consumers and users aren't as familiar or trusting it as much, trusting it enough in order to have it used to a wider degree. We talked about FICO and how they use it and as an example of being more and more transparent. And we also also described for us the importance of being able to use AI in a judicious way in order to use it to your advantage. Tom Davenport, thank you again so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. Now, before we say goodbye for now, where could people who are listening in tune in to find out more about you and your work online? What's a website that they could go to? www.tomdavenport.com. Tom, we're going to go to, we're going to certainly point to that in the show notes. We're going to point to your website as well as your social media, as well as links to buy the book, not just the AI Advantage, but your other books as well. I look for an avalanche of joins and memberships and book sales and so on. Listeners, you heard it. The challenge has been thrown down. Tom Davenport, author of the AI Advantage, thanks once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.